Father, we thank you for this day that you have given to us, uh, even as we gather in this warm and dry place outside of the elements, we are reminded of your good gifts. Uh, above all, the gift of being able to come and worship and fellowship with one another on your day. Bless us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, I have been out for quite some... Oh, yeah, young people. You know the cue. So, I've been out for quite some time. And a uh, number, number of different things that uh been engaged in. One was a church planting conference in Orlando. Another was a... Uh, training conference in San Antonio, and then some time away with Meredith and my brother and sister-in-law that was very refreshing and relaxing, but it is good to be back, and I thought what I would do, this is something that has just kind of hit me, it's nothing brand new, it's uh, nothing overly exciting, I guess, in that sense, but it is something I've just been really meditating on uh, over the past few weeks, and that is The Shorter Catechism, question number 26, is how does Christ execute the office of a king? How is it that Christ is king? Because he's risen from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God Almighty, reigning. And now he is reigning over all things, subduing all things to himself. And so our Catechism question asks, How does he do that? What is the way in which Christ reigns as king? And the first is, the answer is subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering his enemies. So, if you are familiar with the catechism, that's nothing brand new. That's that's uh, something that we've been saying ever since we were young children around the family worship uh, dinner table, uh, is how does Christ execute the office of a king? He executes the office of a king in subduing us unto himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. But here's kind of what I've been meditating on uh, the, the past few weeks, is the scripture that kind of, I think the catechism, uh, anyway, the, the, the scripture that is behind it. And so I would invite you to turn to Psalm 68. And I want you to just hear the language of Psalm 68. Just, just have in your mind the, the, the language, the, the imagination, what is being described in Psalm 68. And we're going to jump from one of the verses in Psalm 68 immediately to where Paul takes it up. So, Psalm 68, to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. 
God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold, when the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, for the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. And then... We'll pause right there and jump over to Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul takes up this psalm. In Ephesians 4 verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. In love. Now, for me, and this may be unique to me, but I'm guessing not, the idea 
of tenderness, the idea of love, the idea of gentleness is, in my mind, I tend to put that over in the more maternal category of things. Whereas the more masculine category of things is boldness, it's confrontation, it's, it's uh, the, the strength, the warrior, those sorts of things. And yet, if you notice that, that, that natural bridge from Psalm 68 to Ephesians 4, Psalm 68, you've got the warrior king. He is conquering. He is riding. The nations melt like wax before him. This is the warrior king riding in across the desert. Sinai itself, that deadly wilderness that we're in the middle of in Exodus. Sinai itself, that place of death and wandering, is now in the very sanctuary of God. This is the warrior king. And that's not even the end of it. The, the end of it is when Christ, that warrior king, rises, he descends into the earth, the death, burial, he ascends, the resurrection and ascension. He rises and now you and I live in that kingship. We live in that reality that this one who has ridden through the wilderness, this one who has conquered all of his enemies, this one who is restraining all who would stand opposed to him, this one is doing it for the church. He gave gifts to men. He gave apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors and teachers. He gave these gifts to the church for the ministry of the saints, for your ministry. The purpose of the apostles, the prophets, the pastors and teachers is so that you can engage in the ministry that God has set for you. Somebody recently said, or I heard someone recently say, that God did not create a mission for his church. God created a church for his mission. His mission is his name being glorified throughout the earth. His mission is his son, his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. His son having a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is his mission. That's the mission that he's engaged in, is the glory of his name. And you and I are part of that mission. We are created for that mission. He built the church for that mission. And so the church... The saints gathered together in the church as the body of Christ are on mission. We are on God's mission. Uh, we're, we're called to God's mission. And the way in which this 
mission of the church is, is realized is when the saints are working together as a body, when we are building one another up in love, when we're speaking truth to each other uh, about our own spiritual condition, about others' spiritual condition. Another way to put it would be when we're being open, honest, and vulnerable uh, with each other. That's the truth. The truth is that we've got things that are in our lives that we don't want other people to know about. We've got things, we've got questions, we've got doubts and fears and concerns in our own brains that, that we don't want other people to, to be aware of. We want them to think better of us than who we really are, the, the kind of person that we really are. And that is very much the, the, the situation of the culture in which we live. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the things I think with, with social media, uh, and I'm, I'm in the process of doing a, an extensive, some extensive study and reading and whatnot on the effects of social media. But one of the things, one of the significant things of social media that I'm not sure that we have really grasped as a culture, and I don't know that we've really played it out as to the danger of it, but you think about your own Facebook page. Uh, for those of you who have a Facebook page, uh, when you post something on Facebook or when you see someone else post something on Facebook, it's curated. It, it's, it's carefully selected to be just the right image or carefully selected to be just the right saying. Uh, you, you curate your life. You're on display and you're wanting to display the best parts of you. Uh, and I get it, you know, I don't, nobody wants to see a picture of my dirty clothes laying on the floor in my bedroom. That's my reality. Uh, I throw my dirty clothes all over the bedroom floor. But I'm not going to post about it on Facebook. <laughs> I'm going to, if I'm going to post a picture of my bedroom, it's going to be after the thing is all cleaned up and I'm going to post a picture of a nice shiny bedroom on Facebook because nobody wants to see how I truly live, <laughs> the, 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 the pig uh, that I really am. Nobody wants to see that, and I don't want people to see that. I want them to see somebody who's got his act together. And that's just a small example of the way in which we curate ourselves and the way in which we, we put an image uh, out that is not completely honest. That, that's not completely open uh, about who we are. And please, I'm not saying you should all start posting dirty bedroom pictures on Facebook. Uh, I, I think social media, there's an inherent problem uh, in that, that that does impact, I think, particularly our young people, that because of all of this uh, perfection that they see, uh, and it's, I mean, Facebook now is for grandparents, uh, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, uh, all of those things are, are the medium, but it's still the same thing. When we are putting images out that are the absolute best, then when we see something in ourselves that's not the best, we think we're not as good as those. We think our life 
is, is worse off uh, than other people's lives. And so as much as I'm saying that, I hope you're hearing, that's how we do it in the church too. <laughs> social media and the dangers of social media really does simply reflect our human condition. It reflects our human heart. The way in which we engage with one another in the church, social media was not invented 20 years ago. Social media was invented way back when Adam tried to cover himself with a fig leaf. That was the first social media. <laughs> that was the first time when, when we tried to portray things as something other than what they were. Uh, and, and, that is very much part of the, of the human condition, part of the, the sinfulness into which we fall. And so I want to, just, just kind of my point in this whole thing, I think there's a lot of applications of this. One of those is uh, when you're thinking about God's providence in your life. I mean, I was just sharing, everybody knows uh, about uh, <clears throat> a young lady in our congregation that was in a horrific car accident uh, recently, and I was, I was sharing with her father uh, just kind of this, this Psalm 68 to Ephesians 4, that, that, that glorious language of Psalm 68 building up to Ephesians 4 and the reality that Jesus Christ is now reigning, that Jesus Christ is now giving gifts to men. That, bring, for me at least, that brings comfort in moments of crisis. When, when you're wondering, you know, how is this going to turn out and, and what's going on and, and you know, you're, you're terrified, you're fearful, and, and completely understandably, you should be. Uh, that, that is completely understandable for a father, for a mother <clears throat> who's, who's in that scenario is, is to be terrified uh, for their child. But to, to live that reality in the knowledge of Psalm 68 to Ephesians 4 to you is... I hope <laughs> it, it, it changes that terror into, yes, it's scary, but I'm in my father's hands. Uh, yes, it's, it's frightening. Yes, you know, the room is dark, but daddy is holding my hand in this dark room. Uh, and, and the, the reality that Jesus Christ is subduing us to himself. He is ruling and defending us, and he is restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies, and that this glorious kingship, this glorious ascension, Psalm 68 is just the prelude to it. Uh, it, it, it builds into Ephesians 4 and the ascension, the reign of Jesus Christ, and gives comfort to you and me. It gives direction uh, to, to you and me. And so I guess that's uh, kind of what I wanted to just just lay in front of you this morning. I, I actually, maybe this makes up for all the other times I ran over. But, but I, th this is just something that's really I've been marinating in uh, over the past few weeks. And it's been very, very encouraging to me. I hope it is to others as well. I want to develop this uh, a little bit more. Uh, some of the implications of it, but, but I, I think the most basic implication, the most important uh, implication is that no matter what happens, 
as I, as I said to my friend whose daughter went through this situation, I said, yeah, your, your, your ship is being tossed in the storm right now. You are, you do see the rocks and, and this is fearful and the waves are crashing and, and this could be a shipwreck except for the knowledge that Jesus Christ is there in the boat with you. That is what makes this <laughs> so different for, for the Christian. And what should make the Christian's life joyful, confident, uh, even in those moments of fear, even in those moments of, of, of disaster. And, and disasters do happen. There are storms on the sea. Uh, there, there are those waves that do rock the boat and threaten to capsize our lives. But Jesus Christ is there with us. He's there and he is reigning. Uh, he's, he's governing all things. So that the primary mission, the glory of God's name, will be seen in this very shipwreck. His primary mission, the glory of his name, will be seen in this very moment. And, and so that's kind of what was on my, my mind and, and uh, heart over the past few days as I've been marinating in that kind of connection. Psalm 68 to Ephesians 4 and the Shorter Catechism, question 26. Boom. So uh, I guess I can close with prayer and we can go into our time of fellowship. Father, we do thank you that your name will be glorified. Your name is being glorified. And it's being glorified through the ascended, reigning Jesus Christ, that he is restraining and conquering all of his enemies, that he is ruling and defending us. And Lord, help us to be mindful of that even in our storms, especially in our storms. Uh, to be reminded of your good and loving control over all things. In Christ's name, amen.